So there are two types of people in the room today. Really only two types when it comes to the topic of horticulturalism or growing things, right? There are those of you that plant things and they grow. And then there are those of you like me that plant things and then they die, right? I can remember Megan and I, we we were so excited. In July, we drove back past our first house that we owned in Indiana and we had planted this one bush. It was, like, it was a totally inappropriate bush for the location, but let's just set that aside for the time. It was like this huge cedar tree, like right beside the house. You don't want to do that right beside the house because of the roots and all that kind of stuff. But we were so excited as we drove by because this plant, this tree, was actually growing. It had sustained growth over four years at this point, and we were so excited. So some of you plant things and they grow. Some of you plant things and they die. Jesus uses a very familiar metaphor that we're going to be looking at today from John chapter 15, where he talks about the vine and the branches. And the vine that Jesus is talking about is himself, and the disciples are the branches. This is the big idea of where we're going today. Jesus says that my disciples are made to bear fruit, that we will be fruitful. And so that's kind of the direction that we're going today. But before we get into that, for those of you that are new, I want to give you a little bit of context about how we've gotten where we're at today. Probably five or six weeks ago, we started a series of messages that we're calling The Upper Room. Pretty straightforward, The Upper Room is this passage of Scripture, John 13 through 17, where Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room just before Jesus will go to the cross. And before this, Jesus and his disciples were out about showing signs and wonders. Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now, for his last moments, Jesus has turned toward his disciples. And he's kind of giving kind of his deathbed confession. But, but he's, he's really focusing on them and what really wants to share, so, to impart some very crucial truth to their lives. And so that's where we've picked up. So we've looked at, over the past few weeks, we've seen that Jesus serves his disciples. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. It's this, it's this interesting picture of what it would look like for them to be in Christ, that Jesus had to wash them. And then there was this, this dark figure in the room with them, Judas betrays him. He sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, and the disciples are left astonished. Jesus says that Peter, the one that's the the most vocal in the crowd, says, Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the sun comes up in the morning. So you can kind of be quiet right now and listen to me. You're going to deny me, but that's okay. It doesn't change my love for you. And then probably most shocking of all was this news that Jesus would leave them, that Jesus would no longer be with them as he had been because he had to go and do the redemptive work of the cross. So they would be troubled in John 14. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And their hearts would be troubled. Jesus says, your hearts don't have to be troubled. You can trust in me. Last week we talked about how Jesus would comfort them. That he would send the Holy Spirit, his very presence, to be among them and to be with them. And to be a floodlight for the truth of Jesus in their lives. To shine that truth into their hearts and to apply it to their lives. So this is where we pick up today. Jesus has just promised the Holy Spirit, and then we pick up from here. And and in John 14, 31, it's interesting because Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. But then he goes on to talk for another two or three chapters. And so one of two things happen in this passage. Either Jesus immediately gets up at that point, the disciples follow him out, they walk down the stairs, and they begin to make their way eastward in Jerusalem, out through the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. Or Jesus kind of announces, hey, we're getting ready to leave, and then goes on to talk for another three hours or so, or however long it would take for him to share these things. We're not really sure which is the case, 
But one of the things that's interesting about Jesus talking about the vine and the branches is this. The vine was this great symbol of national life. Josephus, a historian, tells about this famous mural that's on one of the walls of the temple. And it's this giant mural of a vine and branches and grapes. And the grapes are said to be so big that they're the size of a person. Everyone in Jerusalem would have been familiar with this mural. So it could have caught Jesus' attention, or maybe he drew back to the recollection that they had about that image. Somehow, someway, he gets to talking about the vine and the branches. It's this great symbol of national life. In Isaiah 5, the scriptures say this, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded only wild grapes. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. And his pleasant planting, he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but an outcry. So we see in the scriptures That in the Old Testament, one of the pictures of Israel was this picture of a vineyard, this fruitful vineyard, that they were with the Lord and they they would produce fruit, that they would be useful, they would bring glory to God. But something happened. They couldn't do it. Instead Instead of producing justice, it was bloodshed. Instead of righteousness, it was an outcry. They did not accomplish the purpose that God had for them. And so they were disobedient. And so the question is, what will God do? What will God do to make them obedient? How will God meet them where they're at? The fruit that the Lord was looking for, according to Isaiah 5, was justice and righteousness. I would suggest that the fruit that the Lord is after in our lives as we look at this today, I want to paint a picture of what that fruit is. It comes from Galatians 5. It's also this inward reality, these, these fruits of the Spirit, as Paul talks about. And we're going, to, we're going to read Galatians 5, and then we're going to get into the text we're at today. But I just wanted to paint a picture to kind of give you a, 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 a very vast kind of a brushstroke of what this whole thing is about and give you a broader context than just the upper room. Galatians 5, and 23 says this, but the fruit of the Spirit, some of you know a song. Some of you don't, that's okay, I'll just read it. Is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is what the Lord is after in our lives. This is what brings glory to His name. This is what Jesus was after in His disciples' lives. This is what Jesus is after in our lives as well. So the big idea of where we're going today is this. True disciples of Jesus are fruitful. Would you stand with me as we read John chapter 15, verses 1-17 through together? I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into a fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Father, what rich, what rich word you've given us. You've given us these words about Jesus. You've given us Jesus. Lord, teach us something this morning. Don't let this just blow over our heads and our hearts as something that may be familiar to some people. But press it into our souls. Press it into our hearts and transform us. Change us more into the image of Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit's whole mission in our life. And Father, we just said that we won't, we won't as Jacob said, we, we won't let go until you bless us. We won't let go of John 15 until you bless us with it this morning. So would you do that work? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Preaching a narrative is interesting because I can't just go through and say, okay, one, two, three, four, here's what happened here. Because Jesus is kind of all over the map. It's kind of all twined through the whole text. He, he keeps touching on the same themes. So there's four themes that I want to look at today. And the first one is this. Jesus is the source of all fruitfulness in our lives. So what's that mean? Anything lasting in your life, anything enduring in your life, is because of the work of Jesus. That's what, that's what this passage teaches us. You see, it's interesting because everyone in view in this upper room plays a part in the metaphor that Jesus shares about the vine and the branches. Think about the father. The father is the vine dresser. He's the farmer. Uh, and it's interesting, John 15, 8 is kind of the, the thrust of the entire passage. By this, he says, which he's talking about abiding in Jesus, my father is glorified. Jesus is after the father's glory. And he says, what, what glorifies him? That you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Jesus is after fruit in us because the Father is after his. He's jealous for his own glory. And so that's what disciples of Jesus will produce as fruit. Uh, that inward fruit of, of Galatians chapter 5 that will produce an outward fruit as well. A harvest of souls, good deeds, all of those things. But it first has to come to our hearts and to press into our hearts as first. So we have the Father as the vine dresser. We have Jesus as the vine. We have the 11 disciples as the true branches. And I want you to notice something about those branches. God is not content to let those branches just kind of grow wild. But he wants to prune those branches. It doesn't say, you know, he might prune you. He might, he might prune the branches of the vine that he's planted and the branches that it grows. But it says he will. Because he wants you to bear more fruit. So he's jealous for his glory. He wants to bear more fruit. And he's, he's going to do that. 
And we see Judas is the false branch. You see this picture that even though there's proximity to Jesus, there's a vine that's in close proximity to the true vine. It's not of the true vine, so it can't be the true vine. So you see this picture, it's this kind of sweeping metaphor that he shows us. And in verse 5 he says, Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What a stern word, right? Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And I, and I don't know about you, but my, my temptation is to come back and say, what do you mean I can't do anything? We can't do anything pleasing to the Father apart from Jesus. All of your work is in vain if not through Jesus. That's what he's saying. Unless it comes of the true vine, it can't please God. It can't bring glory to God. Jesus is saying that it is impossible to attain Galatians 5, 22 through 24 in our lives apart from remaining in him. And every single one of us has attempted and will attempt to find life outside of Jesus. We'll do that. That's, that's the effects of sin in our lives and, our, and the temptation that we have to pursue sin. We'll try to find life outside of the true vine. But the Father draws us back to Him and He, he grafts us back into the true vine because of His grace. He says also some very stark kind of truth here that's, that's kind of difficult to hear, that the difference between real Christians and imposters is fruit. I know a lot of times we want to talk about, yeah, I think this person is a believer, is not a believer. It's not for really us to decide, but the fruit is the evidence of the presence of God in our lives. And I love to hear the testimony of like, yeah, I, I don't really know when... I don't really know when this wasn't true for me. People tend to think it's kind of a cop-out, like, oh man, I didn't have this, like, I was following the devil, and then I turned to Jesus, and it was this drastic testimony. But I love the testimony of the, the slow and steady toward Jesus, the, kind of the seed being planted and, and the fruit kind of coming. I, I love that testimony. Both testimonies are great, but typically we don't value the long obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson puts it. We don't value that as much, but the difference in real Christians and imposters is fruit. And we only get fruit through Jesus. So there's no way to please God except through Jesus. That's what he's saying here in this passage. The second point that I want to talk about is God prunes fruitful branches so that they will bear more fruit. So verse 2 says this. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. This is what the work of the Father is. I think it's safe for us all to say that most of the time, pruning is not pleasant. Most of the time, pruning feels more like discipline, doesn't it? Pruning feels more like suffering sometimes. Rarely have I seen someone say, yeah, Lord's kind of pruning me down. It's, it's awesome. And that's why we're not in control of this thing. I mean, the, the Father is the master vine dresser. He's the one that planted us. He's the one that gave us Jesus. And he's the one that shapes and contours our life to bring the most fruit for his glory. He's in control of this thing. I want to read a quote to you. It is so rich that it really just stopped me in my tracks this week. It's, it's from Amy Carmichael, who was an early 1900s missionary in India. And she says this, this is in reference to the process of the father pruning the vine. What prodigal waste it appears to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves and the, the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp knife. But with a tried and trusted husbandman, 
There is not a random stroke in it all. Nothing cut away which it would not have been a loss to keep and a gain to lose. See, what she's saying is that when we're being pruned, a lot of times the things that are being taken away from our lives, taken out of our lives, are things that look like life. I mean, they're green branches on the ground. And they may be very good things, but for some reason, God has saw it fit in his sovereignty to take those things away from us. And she's saying that there's nothing that he's cut out of your life, Christian, that it wouldn't have actually, what does she say? It wouldn't have actually been a loss to keep and a gain to lose. So that, that loss that you're experiencing, it's actually gain. And if you would have kept that, it would have actually been loss. Because the Father makes no mistakes. As the Father is with His pruning machete in your life, He's not careless. It's not that sometimes He kind of makes, oh, I shouldn't have cut that in, I need to get it back into the... the... He doesn't do that. Everything that He cuts, He means to cut. And it's for your good and for His glory. And I think all of us are tempted to abide in those things that the Lord cuts away from our lives sometimes. And when He cuts them away, He's showing us that we cannot find hope in those things. I'm reminded of a story that my friend told me this week about his wife. My friend's name is Rod, and I was on the road to Savannah, Georgia. That's a long drive, by the way. I don't know if you guys have made that drive before. Rod told me a story about his wife, Jan. Jan has passed away from a very aggressive form of brain cancer. So she had to have this operation that was very painful, but she had to be awake during the surgery. Some of you that are in the medical profession probably know what this is. I don't know what it is. I just know that she had to be awake, and that they removed a part of her skull and began to operate on her while she's awake. So there's some local anesthesia going on. I mean, she's not feeling at all, but she's awake and very aware that something's going on back here, and she's got to talk. So what the doctors typically do in this situation is they want to keep the patient in good spirits and kind of keep them not focusing on this, but focusing on what's ever in front of them. One of the doctors kind of makes an off-color joke, kind of get the mood a little lighter or something like that. And Jan, she begins to, this is early in the morning, she begins to talk about her hope in Jesus and why, you know, it wasn't she was being rude. She's just like, I just don't find that funny. And she began to talk about her hope in Jesus. And there are all these doctors in the room And she goes to to share her whole story about all of her family and about the work that God has done in all of her family while her brain is being operated on. God does a remarkable work on one of these doctors. So Rod is sitting out in the waiting room, and Rod is, is waiting for some type of result. This is a very long surgery. And so one of the doctors comes out, and she she kind of comes out kind of urgently to him, and he's thinking, oh no, something has gone south. As he's sitting there and they're they're talking, she says, The surgery went well, everything's good to go. But I gotta tell you. Your wife is unlike anyone that I have ever met before. She says she's witnessing this lady talk about her story and the hope that she has in Jesus while she has this very aggressive form of brain cancer. And she, this, this doctor says, she says, whatever it takes, I want what your wife has because death cannot hold her down. They all know she's going to die. And so there in that waiting room, Rod leads this lady to Christ that's heard his wife's testimony. And so while... Jan's mind is being operated on. This doctor's mind is being renewed in the spirit. But you see, the thing is, is that the world would look at that situation and they would say, they would say, that cannot be God's will. That pruning, that can't be of the Lord. Only the Lord knows what he's doing. 
Only the Lord knows what he's doing in your life. You think some of the things that he has cut out of your life, some of the experiences that you've had, you'd say, man, I wish I didn't have those things. But the Lord knows what he's doing. He is a master vine dresser and he makes no mistakes. Where is it in your life now that you are doubting the vine dresser's precision? Where is it that you think, man, he's just reckless with that machete? Here I am bleeding, he doesn't even care. Where is it? Because I want to challenge you to press into the Spirit, press into the Word of God, and I think you will see that the Lord knows what he's doing. If he can count, if he knows every hair on your head, and he knows all the granules of sand on the seashore. I think he knows what he's doing with his most prized creation. Because remember when he created humanity, what did he say in Genesis? Everything else he said it was good. But to humanity he said it's very good. The Lord knows what he's doing. Even when the pruning isn't pleasant. We should be encouraged when the Lord is pruning in our lives. When he's taking things out of our lives. You know why we should be encouraged? Because there's fruit to prune. He wants it to bear more fruit. And so in these moments of uncertainty, we don't try to find answers, but we enter into the darkness, into the uncertainty, and we say, Lord, we trust you because you are a master vine dresser. And I find my life in your son and do with me what you wish because I want to bring glory to your name. That is the, that is the walk of a Christian. Thirdly, our branches are nourished by the word. So if he's the source of all fruit, and the Father prunes us, how do we grow as Christians? What does it look like for us to grow as Christians? You know, there's a very popular dogma, I guess, among Christians, among evangelicals, and it's this. And I think it's false, but it's this. It's that, okay, God has saved me, now I've got to get to work. That I've got, that I've got a role in growing as a Christian, that it's, that it's kind of all up to me. Now, we've got a responsibility to obey the Lord, but, it's, but it's, it's his work inside of us. So my question is, is how does he work inside of us? What does that work look like? What does he use in our lives? Well, he uses all of our circumstances in life, but he's also got to replace the lies that we've grown up believing with the truth. And the truth is found in his word. So our branches are nourished by the word. Listen to John 15, 3. Already you are clean. He's talking to his disciples. Already you are clean. Because the word that I have spoken to you. So the word for pruning is the same word, a very, very similar root to the word for clean. You see, when, when the Lord is pruning our lives, he's cleansing our lives more and more. Even when it doesn't feel like it. He's saying to these disciples, look guys, you've already, you're already starting the pruning process. The Father is already working in your life. It's not that this is something to come and something to be afraid of, but there's fruit in your life. And the Father is pruning the fruit in your life. And he goes on to say this in John 15, 7, If you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Last week we said, okay, this isn't, a, this isn't an opportunity for us to, to play Jesus, genie in the bottle kind of a thing, right? This is not what this is. He's saying if my words abide in you, it will be as you are representing me. You'll be asking the things that I'm asking. And this is the whole concept of greater works you will do that Jesus says here. The greater works are because we are his ambassadors. And he will do this work through us as we abide in him and his words abide in us. We are walking as Jesus Christ has walked. And he is doing this work through us because he dwells inside of you. So that work he wants to do at your office place, that work he wants to do in your home, he's pleased to use you if his word is abiding in you. Because you will, you will respond as Jesus responds because his word is alive 
It's, it's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, as the book of Hebrews says. That's what the Word of God is. One C.H. Spurgeon, a famous English Baptist preacher, was quoted talking about his friend John Bunyan. And you know what he said about John Bunyan? He said, you know, if you were to cut that guy, he would bleed the Bible. He would bleed the Bible. What would it look like for that to be said of us? That we have such an intake of the Word of God and the community that God has given us. Because He grows us through the Word, but also His people, right? It's a both and, it's not an either or. You're not saved to just sit in a closet reading the Bible your whole life. But the Word works itself out in community. We really believe that here at New City Church. What would it look like if we took the Word of God so seriously that it was our identity, that it was our DNA strands, that, that, that what the world says about us wasn't true, but what the Scriptures say about us is actually true? What would it look like what would, it look, what, what would it take for us to, for someone to say about us, if you cut me, I'd bleed the Bible? Because I think that's the work that the Lord wants to do inside of us. In a similar way, Paul instructs the Colossians this way in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness, in your hearts to God. Abiding in Jesus means that we abide in His Word. And the Word is more than your physical Bible. You know, we have, we've only had a physical Bible for like 400 years, something like that, four, 450, Gutenberg printing press. The Word is the person of Jesus. John chapter 1. He became flesh and dwelt among us, the Word did. He made His dwelling among us. The person of Jesus lives inside of us through his Holy Spirit. That, that, that's the radicalness of what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 15. That we dwell inside of Jesus and Jesus, I and the Father in one and, and I and you and you and me. There's this, there's this radical thing that he's done. It's, it's not, we're not bolting Jesus onto our life. We're not just getting out the bolts and bolting them on the side and taking them off and we don't really want them. We live, we dwell in Jesus. We dwell in the Father. The Father dwells in us through Jesus. It's this wonderful thing. And through his word, and through the, the application of his word via the Holy Spirit, he replaces the lies that we believe with the truth. He changes our lives. The things that don't line up with the word, he gets rid of. He cuts those things out of our lives. That's what pruning is all about. He, the, things, the things that don't bear fruit in our life, he says, I've got to get rid of those things. Because there's only space in your life for me. That's what I'm after in your life. And when we begin to, to realize what dwelling Richly means. It's, 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 a, it's a permanent thing to dwell, to live. His desire is to live among us. And if our word intake, I love, I love our worship gatherings at New City Church. I love them. But if our word intake is 35 minutes a week, how can Jesus dwell richly among us? How is that even possible? How is that enough to sustain us as we go through our week? How is that enough? And so it comes through the Word, getting in the Word privately. It comes through getting in the Word in community, maybe through missional communities, maybe through a Bible study at work or some friends or something like that. But I just know that I grow in the Word more richly with other people. They teach me things. They encourage me in things that I can never see in myself. They draw out things that God has put in me that I don't even believe. It's such a beautiful thing. And Paul says... The word of Christ dwell richly in you. That's exactly what Jesus, this is how we're nourished as Christians. And 
the last thing we're talking about today is the most important fruit is love. The most important fruit that the Lord wants to produce in us is love. So the backdrop of John's gospel stretches its way back to Jesus' encounter in John chapter 3 with this joker named Nicodemus. You guys know Nicodemus. Nicodemus is this Pharisee, and he comes to Jesus by night, and he says, hey, I see that you're doing some great things, Jesus. Tell me what's going on. And what, how does Jesus respond to him? He says, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom. That's what he says to him. And then, then after that, this passage, John 3.16, that, that many of you, even if you haven't been around the church long, probably know this verse. This is in the context of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And it says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. So we see that love is birthed from God. That Jesus is sent because of God's love. And what do we see about love? What, what, what is the action, what is the, what is the verb that follows love? Gave. It wasn't like, it wasn't get, it wasn't consume, it was give. That's the, that's the love that, that Jesus is interested in producing. So he's after that in us. Because that's the, the, the love that, the, as we're going to see, that the Father showed the Son, He gave. And that the Son shows us, He gave. So that we can show others as we give. That's kind of the trajectory we're going. Let me show you where I got this in the Bible. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. So the Father loves Jesus. We have this pure love. The Father loves Jesus. They are one. John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Listen to this. As I love you. There's a way that Jesus wants us to love other people. As he loved us. And he tells us what that looks like in John 15, 13. He says, This greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So he's, he's reiterating the fact that love is about this, this agape love, this self-sacrificing, this giving love here. And then in John 13, 34 through 35 that we, we looked at a few weeks ago, it says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. He says the same thing again, just as I have loved you. So the same kind of love that he's loved us with is the love that he wants us to love others with. This just as love. You, you also are to love one another. By this, listen to this. This is, this is the grand mission of the church. By this, all people, not some people, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. We can't, we can't please the Father without loving one another. Both in the church and out of the church. So the fruit of love is this as is love, the Father's unconditional love. It's as is. It's, it's Jesus, when the Father redeemed us through the work of Jesus, it wasn't like, hey, there's this warranty kind of situation, and if these things start malfunctioning in your life, I'm going to take it back to the dealership because I didn't sign up for this. It's an as is love. There's no returns. And Jesus reiterates the fact when he says this in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And then John would expound upon this in his letter, 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. See, there's this preceding love. There's this love that comes before our response to love. And it's very important that we understand this as Christians. So what does this mean? I would propose that this choosing, this, when Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, 
that word choosing is this big biblical concept of election that we're not going to get really far into today because the scriptures don't really take us there today. But I would say this, that it's this, this idea of God setting his love on us. That's what it means to choose. Let me show you where I got that from. Let's go to Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 here. We're getting ready to land this plane here, I promise. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Now, so why would he choose us? Because we were great, everything was going well, we loved him perfectly, not at all. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, this word that he set his love on us, it's the same word. If you go back and look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, it's the same word. It's the same word that he's using there. So when the Father chooses us, he's setting his love on us. And he's setting his love on it, manifests itself through giving us Jesus. And now our responsibility is to show that Jesus is alive inside of us and show Jesus to the world because he has set a certain kind of love on us, this self-sacrificing love. And we show that to one another and to the world through how we live our lives. So greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This as-is love that Jesus is talking about is an unmerited, no-strings-attached favor that he gives to those that he loves. So let me ask you this question. If this is the love that the Father has shown us through the Son, this is the love that we abide in, how can we go and give another type of love to those that are around us? How can we go and do that? It can't be the work of the Father. I think it's because we're, we're trying to find this love to show the world around us from another source other than the vine. We love because he first loved us. And greater love is no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. So Jesus is pointing to the cross, but he's also pointing to us what, what love actually looks like. It means sacrifice. And you find the strength to give because Jesus gave on your behalf. There was nothing in you that he looked upon you and said, man, just got to have this guy on my team. Unfortunately, you know, I think I'm all that in a bag of potato chips sometimes too, but that wasn't why he chose any of us. He chose us because he loved us. It's this beautiful picture of what the gospel actually is. So there's nothing in your life right now that prohibits, that prohibits you from receiving the love of God. There's nothing that, that we could look at in your life and say, ugh, got to clean up your act in this area. And then maybe the Father will love you. That's not how God works. See, in Deuteronomy, it says that they were the fewest of all peoples. They were, they were to be pitied. That's what he means. There's nothing in them that would make them worthy of choosing, but it was God's love. And there are people in your life that don't have anything to offer you, and God is calling you to love them. And the question is, will you obey the Father in that or not? This is how the world will know Jesus, by how we love this is the greater work that he wants to do, church. In closing, uh, I remember hearing a story that Paul Tripp told several years ago uh, through some of the, or some of the uh, parenting stuff that he did, shepherding a child's heart. And he, he uses this story, and he talks about this, this. They had this apple tree in the backyard, 
And this apple tree was, it was diseased. That every year they would put the best fertilizer on it. They would, they would prune it, they would trim it up. But they could never get the apple tree to grow good apples. I mean, there were always worms in the tree. I mean, there's all, all this stuff that are going on with the apples. And, and so, you know, Paul's wife is kind of on to him and says, look, we've got to get this, this apple tree to produce some apples. I want to make some apple pie. You know, I want, to, I want to be able to utilize the fruit of this tree. Paul, in frustration, goes to the store. He buys like 50 bushels of apples, puts them in the back of his SUV or minivan or truck or whatever, drives home. He gets out with the ladder in the backyard and begins taking the machete to the old apples. And then he grabs his hammer and grabs his nails and starts to nail up the apples on the tree. And he comes up to his wife. He's like, hey, you happy now? Look, the tree is producing apples. Where am I going with this? Some of us are trying to produce false fruit. We are, trying to, we are trying to act a certain way to project that we are fruitful and that we are disciples of Jesus. But the only way to bear fruit in our lives is to abide in the vine and to trust the vine dresser. It's the only way. And that's what I'll close with today. Where are you at with that? Are you trusting the Father with your life? Are you trusting his, his, his pruning machete as he takes it to your life? Are you trusting the fact that he's more eager for you to be fruitful than you are? Are you trusting him? Let's pray together. Father, some rich truth, some hard truth this morning. Father, I pray that we wouldn't let you go in John 15 until you bless us. I know that you've blessed me with this word, Father. I pray that you would continue to bless those that are here this morning with this word. That you are a good, good Father. That you make no mistakes. And that you are eager for us to bear fruit for your glory, for our good, and for the good of those that are around us. This is how the mission advances through the way that we love one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.